why is it we've been going so long with looking at the details of Ruth chapter 3, of looking at Boaz, the character of a man of God in terms of courtship is this, is that when you read at the scriptures, there's not a lot of passages that show courtship, relationship. That is, the relationship of an, two individuals before they get married. Uh, you don't see a lot of this, but then at the same time, uh, Ruth chapter 3 is pretty long. It is 18 verses. And I think it's important to see Boaz, uh, if we really see the story here in light of everything I've set up for the last few weeks, is that the beginning of the initiating of the marriage might not have been as wise for the mother-in-law uh, of Ruth, okay? And even Ruth, uh, who's also, if you guys remember, let's just, uh, by way of context, remind us all these passages, what's going on here, is this is a story of eventually Ruth and Naomi. And they're going to get, a uh, correction, Ruth and Boaz, they're going to be married, the man, Boaz, and Ruth, okay, who was a widow, okay, uh, and in looking at all of this, we see this is a love story, but of course, it's a love story that eventually, God will use them to, uh, their marriage, give birth to David, who is one of the characters in the Bible that's mentioned mo- the most in the Old Testament, in fact, the d- name of David is mentioned more than Moses and Abraham combined, okay, and if you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, uh, he dominates, okay, he dominates, you know, uh, 40% of the uh, passages is there. And, uh, and all that compared to most of the kings, even the notable ones, are just only, what, uh, about 20 verses uh, the most, okay? So we see he's big, and of course, from David is Jesus Christ is born, okay? So we, let's read verses 17 to 18, okay? Verses 17 18 says this, She, that is Ruth, said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not... Go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she said, Wait for my daughter until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he's settled today. Let's pray. Father God, we pray, Lord, that you speak to us and minister to us from your word this morning. Lord God, allow this word to be your word and help us, Lord. I pray, Lord, for those that are single, um, that they would internalize just even biblical characteristics of a man of God and a woman of God in courtship. But also we pray, Lord, that you minister um, even for those that are married, as we uh, disciple, as we pour our heart out, as even other people reach out to us for advice and biblical counsel, and even raising our kids, we raise them to think biblically about courtship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so as a reminder, last uh, just what uh, actually Victor already summarized what the character, godly characteristics of someone pursuing uh, courtship is from last week. For the sake of time today, we're going to be looking at three more characteristics, Okay. Three more characteristics of a godly person when it comes to courtship. Uh, uh, that is the pursuit of marriage, okay? We're going to see three characteristics. We're going to look at these two verses. Um, but characteristics number one is this. Show love to your potential in-laws, okay? We're going to look at that in verses 17. Show love to your potential in-laws, okay? And uh, point number two is wait for God's timing. Wait for God's timing. This is found in verses 18, Okay? Let me review the two points thus far. Number one is show love to your potential in-laws. Remember, this is courtship, okay? That they're not married yet, but they're interested in being married. But we should see the principle is show love to your potential in-law. Point number two is wait for God's timing. That's based on verses 18. And third is this. This is not so much from the text, but I think this is a summarize of everything in the story, okay? Point number three is this. Handle the pain. Of breaking up or rejection biblically. Handle the pain of breaking up or rejection biblically. Okay? Handle the pain of breaking up 
and rejection biblically. This is not based upon the verse, but this is based upon the whole scenario of this chapter. That what if they, it would not work out? There were obstacles to them being married. But what if happens if it doesn't, work, uh, break, uh, if it doesn't go well? Now, I'll give you anticipation uh, for next month. Ruth chapter 4 will show that they will both be married. But what if they don't, the real possibility, they do not know at this time, there is a risk that it would not go well. In fact, there was a very big risk if you've been listening for the last few weeks. But at the same time, I also want to consider the part because in the reality that we live in today, would everyone be in a relationship end up being married? No, okay? Uh, would everyone being even engaged would end up being in marriage? No, sometimes people call off their engagement. So in light of this, we want to look at this point that even the characteristics of someone in courtship is you want to handle the pain of breaking up or rejection biblically, okay? So in light of this, uh, we're setting this up. Remember the story? This is a story about Ruth. She used to be married. She was a young widow. Her husband died. Then she went with her mother-in-law. When she was actually from another culture, another people called the Moabites, were often enemies of Israel. Now she's living, so to speak, in enemy territory, in a foreign land or a foreign culture. And back then, uh, there is no welfare, no social security. So being a widow means is often what? You are very likely in a life of poverty. So often you would often, uh, as part of the culture, is also there'll be set up things of, be, uh, of widows being married to someone that's a relative of your dead husband. Now we might say like 3,100 years ago, Mr. Bernard is so good. He did the math, uh, added David, uh, and add 100 years, right? A grandparent and so, right? So 3,100 years ago or so, you might say, okay, it's a strange culture, but you need to understand why. At least for myself, by the way, there's a lot of strange cultures even today. What we might think, one of the things about, I love the study of culture, a biblical view of anthropology, is even though it might be weird, it might be strange, it might not even be right, but we ask the question, what leads them? Sometimes not everything is fully wrong. There might be a good intention behind with that. By the way, let me say this. I don't think every culture is good, okay? Including what? American culture. Because what? It's all um, constructed by man, and we are flawed, okay? Uh, at the same time, we need to be sensitive, but at the same time, every culture has things that are flawed including our own culture, right? American culture, or even subculture also as well, okay? Everything has things that uh, uh, might be done better, okay? And good strengths too. But let's go on with this, in light of this setting up. Let's go to our first characteristics we see of biblical courtship is show love to your potential in-laws. Let me add this, uh, that when you look at verses 17, it teaches us this, okay? Look again with me in verses 17. This is... Uh, Ruth, she has just come back from the field. Remember, she made that strange proposal where we saw earlier, I hope we established, that it was not as wise the way she went about this. She put herself in risk of being taken advantage of and also the danger of other men misinterpreting her, going out in the middle of the night and all of that, okay? But at the same time, Boaz was a godly man. He did not take advantage of her and he also, what? Understand her attention and also protected her from the risk of, what, uh, of being out in the field in the middle of the night. So here, a field where everyone else is there because every, uh, other men are also what, protecting their barley that they're trying to um, thresh, okay? So here, in verses 17, she goes back home, reports to her mother-in-law this. She said, these six measures of barley gave to me. For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. What Boaz said in his action here actually showed care, not only for Ruth, whom he wanted to marry, but also showed care for her what? Mother-in-law, okay, which has become almost like her own mother in light of the fact that uh, Ruth has left her household and went with her older mother-in-law to take care of her, 
Okay, so he shows care with his action and what he says. It is interesting to note if you look here that this is actually the climax of Ruth's report to her mother-in-law of what happened that night. In other words, the climax she's pointing out is actually of Boaz providing barley for Ruth, not just Ruth, but specifically for who? For Ruth's uh, uh, mother-in-law, Naomi, okay? So in looking at this, you might now, uh, I think there is importance with this. We might pass out details, but I think part of the thing about looking at the Bible is asking the question that many things happen, but the editor, the, the author made an intentional point to add this detail. And Ruth intentionally set this up as the last part among all those things. Notice if you look at verses 17, uh, verses 17, uh, and if you look even before uh, 17, uh, before that, she, she gives a report, okay, uh, in, beginning in verses 16. She just, summarized, she just summarized in verse 16 by the narrator. She told all that the man has done for her. But the editor, the writer, intentionally in verses 17, quoted what he has said. So in other words, among all the things we already know all before it's not regurgitating everything, but the fact that she, he adds this detail, the editor adds this detail, shows there's significance for us and even applications to draw out with that. What did Boaz uh, done here is actually she's quoting even him, okay? Uh, she, uh, even saying six measure, by the way, in Hebrew is also nuance. Remember how we said earlier, um, the way Hebrew does uh, sentences is usually what? A verb, a subject, object. But in Hebrew, even though this is the object of what is given, it's moved forward, even though it's usually and it's moved forward so that you would see this. It's intentionally setting it up as climax. So we must focus on this and that's what's the significance of six measure of barley? Or what, not, I don't think the necessary number of six, by the way, what we said last time, if this is six um, uh, ephah or, or six measurements, it's about probably 15 to 20 pounds. Of grain. Think about it. She just went uh, trying to propose to him. Now she comes back with, with this. Now you may ask, what is all this about? Why did Boaz show an interest for, my, for Naomi by giving barley to Ruth's mother-in-law? Okay? Uh, the reason why is it might be several fold. One of the reasons it's possible is he might know the institution. He might be thinking about the institution Kinsman Redeemer. Remember what we said back in those days? There's no welfare, no social security system. One of the ways for widows to be taken care of if they're young enough is to be remarried, okay? Uh, is to be remarried, okay? Um, I know for our Western mind, uh, I'm saying this because uh, when I was preaching at the Indonesian church last week, the, there was one individual asked me, hey, how come it's supposed to be a love story, but I don't see no love. I see arranged marriage and stuff like that. Let me say this real quick. Maybe this is a challenge for our modern day thought. Um, throughout history, has there been arranged marriage throughout history? Yes. Is there arranged marriage even today? Yes. Okay. Let me say this. I think sometimes we picture arranged marriage in certain part of Asia. The way we see it is this. Okay. The dad comes and says, you're marrying this person. So, oh, yeah. And then he's like, oh, okay. That's bad news. Okay. Sometimes the better idea is seeing this. They arrange and say, hey, why don't you guys talk to each other for five minutes? We walk out of the room. You guys talk and then come back. Do you guys see you guys compatible that we could maybe kind of go ahead or you see it not at all? Or maybe not five minutes, but like, you know, a little bit of time. Okay. So in a sense also as well, um, in our church, we used to have someone that used to preach at our church for one retreat. If you guys remember, many years ago, there was a man named Sam Matthews, okay? He was from India, okay? And he was actually arranged marriage with his wife. Now, during that retreat, some of you guys might remember, we went to like this Irvine school, right? He was holding his wife's hand. So obviously, he loves her, yes? And she loves him, okay? 
So I want to say is to challenge our notion, it's not necessarily always mutually exclusive, okay? Let me say this again. So in light of this, one of the reasons why he's doing this is perhaps he's understanding the idea of kinsman redeemer. He wants to marry her, but he's also respecting her authority also and her role in this, okay? This is hinted by the fact that the narrator in Roof 2.1 already talked about that he's related to Elimelech. There, this is a potential uh, kinsman redeemer. It might be also the reason why he does this is certainly a gesture of good faith. To, that he desired to carry out what was required to marry Ruth. Okay? Or at least to get the primary kinsman redeemer to either marry Ruth. Remember the obstacle earlier we said? There might be some closer relations that is more in that culture justified to say, Oh, I will marry her because I'm close relations to the dead uh, um, the dead husband, okay? So at the same time, he's saying, okay, I'm going to be committed with this. So this is a good gesture why this is done. Or we could see this more, I think, and this is my view, more likely the possibility. I think there's multiple possibility, but I think more likely is he sees it as a down payment. For what? The price for a bride, a betrothal, okay? Now you may say, oh, it's just only 20? Why is it that much? Well, remember, it's the middle of the night. She's going back, and, you know, it's already unsafe to go back in the middle of the night, right? People miss, or, or, or late, when it's really dark, people misunderstand, okay? This is just the first fruit of that, okay? By the way, the idea of betrothal, uh, yes, uh, the idea of dowry, yes? You might say, oh, it might be very cultural. And I agree, it's very cultural. Because every different culture do things dowry differently, yes? Western culture historically has always been, who gives a dowry? Which side of the family? The... Uh, uh, the, is it the woman? The, the woman, okay. Eastern is, uh, or, or Orient or Asian, is what? Who usually gives? The guy, right? Because in the woman, in Asian culture, will be what? Okay, uh, well, you're already getting my daughter. Why would I need to pay you again, right? Uh, but then the other side is this, too. Why, why is that? It's also as well sometimes as a way of saying, hey, I could be financially what? Stable, okay? And by the way, if this doesn't work out, when you go back to your family, Hey, there's, there's something there, okay? Or, or, or she needs, so, or, or this is security, say this is a commitment, that we really want this to work. Do you see how it makes sense? In light of this, it, those understanding, reading this, he's, what he's doing here is I think there's a sense he's showing love to his potential in-law, okay? He's showing love here, okay? Uh, if you look again in this part, in the end of verse 17, Ruth reveals a portion of dialogue with Boaz that wasn't mentioned earlier in this chapter. If you look here, when it says, when she says, For he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Okay? Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Do you see anywhere in Ruth 3, this part being said by Boaz earlier? No. He, in other words, she's quoting more details that was not mentioned by the narrator. And the narrator chose that to, to build up the climax here. And he's bringing this up to say is this, that why is he giving this? Why is he giving this to a mother-in-law? If he doesn't, he's giving the reason here, is he doesn't want her to go back empty-handed. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm going to marry you? Okay, goodbye. Okay, go back to your mother's laws now, or your mother's house now. And there's nothing she goes with empty-handed, okay? I think there's more of a sense of not just this is rude, but he's actually trying to show love to his potential mother-in-law. This also shows a reversal of Naomi's bitter accusation of God in Ruth 121. Now, if you look again here, it says, do not go to your mother-in-law what? Fill in the blank. Empty-handed, okay? Paying attention to the word empty. The word empty actually appears earlier in the, sto- the short story of Ruth. 
If you look with me, put your pinky or thumb here in Ruth 3. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 1, 21. Ruth chapter 1, 21. When we get there, Josh in big boy voice, could you read that out loud for all of us to hear? Ruth chapter 1, verse 21. Yeah, remember earlier in Ruth chapter 1, all these women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, they've just lost their husband. They are leaving the foreign land of Moab and they're coming back. And the town woman have, have not seen her for 10 years or more. Says, whoa, you're back. And she's like, hey, don't call me, uh, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara, which means bitterness. Change my name. Okay? And when she says this, the reason why is because she feels she went out and now she came back empty. She's lost her son, the uh, death of her two sons. She's lost the husband. And she feels that God has empty everything. Okay? We looked at it last time. That's, that wasn't fully true. Because standing next to her is who? A very faithful mother, uh, uh, daughter-in-law. Okay? So going back, the same word for empty that see, uh, Romans, not Romans, Ruth chapter 1 verse 21 appears also as well when you turn back with me. Ruth chapter 3 verse 17, that word empty here, he's saying, using that same word, saying, hey, I don't want you to go back wet, empty-handed. Maybe he has heard, in light of the fact that this earlier address, when she says, I came back empty, I have nothing. And she's telling the townswoman, and usually people talk. Maybe he has heard, this is how she feels. But now, he shows love to her mother-in-law by saying, hey, you know what? I want you to go back, but I want you to know, when you go, I don't want you to be wet, empty-handed. Right? Do you see the, just even this uh, symbolic gesture here? And if he does not know, which is even a possibility, but although I think it's very uh, unlikely because of how much he knows, he's one of the town's leader. He's doing the symbolic gesture to say, I care for you, I care for you, and I'm showing love to you. You feel you've been empty-handed. But now here comes Ruth. Well, by the way, six measures uh, here is probably about uh, 20 pounds. It's more than a handful, Yes. It's going to take both hands to carry 20 pounds with her, uh, what do you call it, her outer garment, holding all of that, okay? And it's a symbolic gesture of his love also as well. By showing love to his potential mother-in-law, she, he was also, uh, even whether he intended or not, it was a gesture to Naomi that God was working through Boaz, okay? God was working to Boaz to let Naomi know that God has not left her empty, and God has not abandoned her. Show love to your mother, potential in-laws, is also at times the way of showing what? God working through you to show the love of God. As application, as application, I know, like I said earlier, Western value stresses individualism in terms of relationship. True or not? People could be in relationships like, huh, mom and dad, what are you asking me about my boyfriend or my girlfriend? I'm already 18 and I'm already adult. It's none of your business. That's Western way of looking at this. Not even that, only that, but sometimes people's sinful nature might not even want to court someone without the involvement of one's parents, family, and pastors, okay? Uh, now, I do respect people's privacy, but there is such thing as hyper-privacy, yes? Like, for instance, you could say, hey, how are you doing? I know you're in a relationship, but how are you doing? How's that going? And the person says, like, it's none of your business. You're like, whoa, like, I'm not, like, probing. But at the same time, I've always seen as a pastor, Practically, those that stresses hyper-privacy in relationship often ends up, what? Uh, usually sometimes having 
a lot of skeletons. As a rule of thumb, there's no Bible verse that says that, but as a rule of thumb, okay, when it becomes so much like, um, please switch topic, please don't talk. Sometimes that might be uh, with that, okay? But let me say, this goes against the grain because there is the involvement of others, okay? There is involvement of others. Notice Boaz did what was right in the eyes of all others and also ultimately in the eyes of God, right? So remember how it began very private. Just Naomi sending out roof in the middle of the night. Anything could have happened, okay? They could easily have a bad reputation or people have seen misunderstanding. But notice in Boaz, being a man of God, he didn't just leave this relationship private and getting into all kinds of trouble. He even sent her back, but also as well as what? Acknowledging that, hey, the mother-in-law has a role in this, right? The mother-in-law has a role and continues to have a role, that he wants others to be involved, okay? He was doing things right, not only in the eyes of others, in terms of our culture, okay? Uh, but also in the eyes of God, ultimately, okay? Ultimately in the eyes of God. So as application, I want to go to apply this for those who are courting and for those who are married. For those who are courting, how do you treat your future in-law? How do you treat your future in-law? Many years ago, as a pastor, uh, my wife and I counseled a sister, a particular sister, and said, you know what, in light of everything we've known of this individual for decades or a decade, and also what you've been sharing for a year, we actually don't think this is a wise relationship to go into marriage. And the person got upset and said, well, you know what, why is it you say this? Why is it all the churches say this? Which to me, by the way, is a validation. When other churches and other pastors uh, and like-minded believers also agree, then that's a validation to me also as well. It's like, well, one of the first signs was what? That the first time you met, this man met your in-laws, they were already arguing as the first thing. Is it a good sign? First meeting, you're already arguing. Is that a good way to begin the journey? What do you guys think? No. No, okay. Now, maybe on later on, okay, when you guys have kids, you know, things, conflict will be inevitable, okay? By the way, conflict, everyone has a vote, whether or not there was conflict, true or not. But if it's early on, that might be a sign that this is, might be of concern. So do you treat your in-laws, future in-laws with respect? Do you treat them with respect? Do you honor them, okay? By the way, they, you could totally disagree with them and you could still honor them, okay? One of the things we need to realize in life, we need to stop believing the lie that sometimes our flesh and our society tells us that if you disagree, you cannot be honorable towards them or respectful. That is totally not true. Also, how does the person you are in relationship treat your parents and family? Okay, not just only say, ask how you treat them, but look at the person that you're with in courtship. Do you see things that might be of concern revealing his or her character that might affect your marriage that you two need to talk about? Okay. So for those who are married, how's your relationship presently with your in-law? Okay? Don't just be nice and what? Sweet towards your in-laws before you're married. Because why? You really, really want to what? Get married. Okay? You you want to impress, okay, in every way. But how do you treat them even right now? Okay? When two people are married, it is true they're a new family, okay? But at the same time, while the way of showing respect might be different, or some of the things you do might be different, because you guys are now a new family, uh, at the same time, you want to still show love and honor your in-laws, okay? That is pretty convicting. Because why? Am I, in our church, I have my sisters here. I have my dad in the, in the church. I have my wife here. And I also have my in-laws, okay? I wish the name in-laws would be in grace, okay? 
because sometimes people just say, oh, there's just my in-law, barely by the technical definition of the law, okay? But hopefully, we will be in grace, okay? In light of this. But how do you treat them? Uh, how do you treat them, okay? Also, never forget, never forget this point as application. Never forget that showing love to your spouse's parents is God's way of working in you to show grace of their believers, but also, even if they're non-believers, to be what? Evangelistic, okay? To show them the love of God, okay? To show them the love of God. Let's go now to the second point. Our second point is this. Wait for God's timing, okay? Wait for God's timing. Verses 18, God's word says this. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he settled it today. This is now, again, remember, this is at the home of Naomi and Ruth. Remember, Boaz left the field. They both walked away in the field. Boaz is to go out there to talk to the townsfolk, to talk to the other leaders, to figure out the process to, to get married to her. Or if not, this other person will marry her and take care of her. Okay? He's out doing his thing. She goes back home, reports everything to her mother-in-law. And now the mother-in-law speaks to her daughter-in-law. In verses 18, the main verb in verses 18 is the verb wait. Let me ask you guys this question. Uh, the, in on your version, does it say wait? You're shaking your head, you're using NASB, yes? Okay, uh, Amplified says? Sit still. Sit still, okay, wow. I'm beginning to really like the Amplified, okay? <laughs> um, it's really Amplified, okay? Sit still. Anyone else, a version, say sit or anything else? <coughs> That's a better translation than mine. I translate sit down, okay? Uh, so uh, in light of this, the Hebrew verb here, wait, literally, most of our English translate this as wait, literally is sit. Okay? Literally, is sit. Uh, and by the way, this verb is a command. It's not a suggestion. Hey, may you sit down? Oh, do you want to sit down? It's like, no, sit down. Okay? Um, and this is, like I said, literally sit. It's almost as if the imagery we get is this. That Ruth comes home, reports everything. Uh, and she's excited. And she's also nervous because why? She could be married or she could end up not being married. Okay? The hour of decisions uh, of, of in the next few hours is going to change her life radically. Do you guys understand that? So how would you feel about that? How would you feel about that? You'd be nervous, okay? So she's nervous. I could, we could picture the mental picture here, that she might be walking around, right? Right? Some of us gets nervous. What do we do? Pace. I get nervous. I decide to do something productive for steps. Walk, right? Okay? At least there's something good out of that, okay? So in light of this, here we see that she, you could picture the idea that she might be pacing around, Okay? But it's also often used as an idiom for the idea of waiting, okay? Uh, the idea of waiting. This command is a contrast with what Naomi told Ruth to do earlier. Remember in the beginning of chapter 3, Ruth was told by Naomi. Naomi has this crazy idea like, oh, you know what? This might be a good husband. So why don't you go in the middle of the night, sneak up to him when he's asleep, and just pull his uh, outer covering as a blanket and let his feet be cold and then he wakes up. Is that, we talked about this before, was that a very wise idea? No, okay? So do not use that verse and say, oh, Pastor Jimmy told me that if I like somebody as a crush, I'm going to sneak to their house, open their window, open their, you know, pull their feet, and just wait there. If you do that, don't say the Bible teaches that, okay? Uh, the Bible, I think here, remember, everything we've seen with the mother-in-law, there was a bit of foolishness in each of this, okay? Uh, right? Remember Ruth 1 earlier? Uh, she also said, go back to your gods. But the Bible says there's only one God. 
right? Ruth 2, when she, Ruth uh, says, you know what, we're hungry, Let's, let me go out and get food for us. She says, you go, I'm just going to be sulking here, my depression, uh, right? She didn't go to protect her daughter-in-law. And then now Ruth 3. But yet despite all of this, in light of, there's a contrast. Was earlier Naomi told Ruth to act, to do all these things, now she tells her to wait. Naomi said this, I think, out of love. She wasn't annoying. Say, hey, you sit down. Notice she says what? My what? Daughter in verse 18. That term of endearment appears again. That term of endearment appears throughout this whole chapter. In the mouth of Boaz and also in the mouth of Naomi. She says to wait. But how long should she wait? It says, until you know how the matter turns out. Literally in the Hebrew it is, until you know how the matter falls out, okay? That is, I think the idea is almost like casting die, right? Or, or, or lots. You shake it and you what? Throw it on the ground. I think what he's saying, saying here is not gambling. is the idea of wait until whatever the matter is, however it turns out. I think it's an idiomatic phrase. This idea here is not surrendering nihilistically. Oh, whatever happens, happens. But I think is what she's trying to say here is actually not just oh leave it up to chance, but it's actually her way of pleading to her to trust in God, specifically to touch uh, trust in God's providence and to trust that God is sovereign and is in control. Why could she wait, even though waiting for the matter to be solved? Why could she wait? And by the way, for those that desire to be married, it is hard to wait. True or not? Single, no relationship. I pray for those who are single. My prayers used to be only for people to get married, but now I also pray, Lord God, give them the grace to wait, brothers and sisters. And in relationship, people could even feel like, I can't wait to be married already. When people are engaged, okay? When people, to the last night before, often people could not what? Sleep, true or not, okay? Of excitement, all that kind of thing. But why, what is the reason why she could wait? Notice the reason Naomi said to Ruth. Why she can wait. Quote, For the man will not rest until he settled it today. The word for here is indicating the reason why she could wait. The reason is why Ruth could wait is because Boaz is responsible. He would do everything right. And he would do everything to try to marry her. But even if she, he, it turns out that he cannot marry her, he will still do everything right by making sure if the other person, if that person's going to marry her, then he would allow her to marry her. And he's doing, in other words, everything right. Okay? That's the reason. By the way, there's a contrast. There's a contrast here. Boaz is out in town. He's going to work, go all out to get her married, whether by himself or the other person. The opposite is going on with what? Ruth. She's sitting there and what? Waiting. Okay? By the way, could I say this? In relationship... There's a part where we're responsible for certain things, but there's also things that are outside our way, control. And we need to wait upon the Lord with that, okay? It is now the moment for Boaz. Just like Ruth earlier, it was her action, but now it is time for Boaz to act. And sometimes in those times, when others are acting, when there's things outside of control, we wait. Boaz is responsible enough as a person, by the way, to not only rest, but he, he will settle it for what? What does it say? When will he figure everything out? When will he get, make sure uh, everything happen? Today. Think about this. This man is a man that's responsible. He wants to secure her future. 
this, her, his love for her, even to the point of willing to say, you know what, if it means someone else marrying, if it means that she's better off than being a widow, going to the field, being a beggar, going to the field, picking grains of leftovers, then let it be for her betterment, for a better of her quality of, of life, including her mother-in-law. So he will settle it today. He's a responsible gentleman, isn't he? Okay. But the ultimate reason why Naomi, uh, the ultimate reason why we should trust why Ruth could wait is because God is what? Uh, faithful. And God is working. Amen. Okay. Um, the ultimate reason, let me say this again, why Ruth can wait is because God is working. God has been working throughout this entire book, is He not? One of the reasons why I love the book of Ruth so much is when you read, sometimes we think, oh, if only I was learning the Bible time, I did all these miracles. You know, if you have an enemy, you know, you could part the Red Sea and, and, and drown all of Pharaoh's army. But you know what? Sometimes life is just like Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. There's no supernatural miracles. There's no feeding of the 5,000. There's no, like, dead people raising up. This is ordinary day-to-day life in the time of the judges, which is very violent, very sinful. You can almost feel like, where's God? But God has been working throughout the, the fingerprints of God, the providence of God. God working things that, you know, say, wow, it looks like coincidence, but it's the fingerprint of God. It's already been from chapter 1. Do you remember? God was controlling the weather. Allowed Israel, yet once again, to have good weather, to have food instead of a famine so that they could come back. God was working in chapter 2. That she happened, Ruth, happened to be in the right field. Of all the fields she could have been in, she went to the right field of this man named Boaz, who was actually related in kin, and she didn't even know that. Okay, of all among all these men, among, in a time period where things were violent, here she went to the right field. Okay, and by the way, here you see in Ruth three is God still working? Yes, even despite what imperfect people and people with plans that are not so wise in the beginning. You see the ultimate reason why Ruth could wait is because of God is working. By the way, for us, we need to also believe, oh man, what to leave in, what to leave out, okay? We need to believe that God is good and let that motivate us to wait upon the Lord. You don't have to turn there, but if you're taking notes, I'm going to read this myself just for the sake of time. Psalm 27, verses 13 to 14, okay? Psalm 27, verses 13 to 14. This is Ruth's grandson, okay? David. Says this, I would have despaired until I believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 14, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Do you see the command in verses Psalm 27, verse 14? It calls us twice to wait upon the Lord. Twice, not just once, but twice, repeating for emphasis. But what is his motivation? What led him to still say, I will wait for the Lord even though it's hard, even though I'm going through trials? Verse 13, he believed in what? The goodness of the Lord. That allows him to wait. Isn't it so interesting that this is the grandson whose own grandmother, Ruth, lived this out. Okay? Ruth living this out. Isaiah 40 verses 31, another reason why we can wait upon the Lord is wait upon the Lord gives us strength to endure. This is why you want to wait upon the Lord. Not just only a relationship and waiting. There is an aspect of waiting. But you want to also wait upon the Lord because it gives you strength in all areas of life. It says, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain what? New strength. 
They will mount up like eagles, like wings with eagles. They will run and not get tired. They wait and uh, uh, they will walk and not become weary. Can I say this? I believe this verse. I believe if you do things God's way and if you wait, and sometimes even when you're tired, when you go upon trusting and praying for the strength of the Lord, I believe God is, will give you strength, okay? You know, sometimes you see guys drink what? In the Marines, what do they call those things? They like to drink, what do you call it? The monsters, right? Okay? They drink, people drink monsters. Well, you know what? Uh, this sounds almost sacrilegious. God is, uh, that sounds, almost sounds sacrilegious to say God is the ultimate monster, right? But God is what? God is what? Strength, okay? Um, this week, I had a, a really busy week, okay? Trying to prepare to teach overseas. We're going to be teach 24 session, okay? This week, rolling out, um, finish uh, thus far up to 15 of 24. Uh, I stayed up till 5, and I woke up at like 8.30 and 9, okay? But I was going through this, I was like, hey, there's times I haven't taken a nap. But it's just what, actually, the joy comes from what? The Lord, the Word of God, okay? I actually believe the Bible. I, I know sometimes when I evangelize, like colleges, sometimes people say, oh, I used to be a believer, but I didn't, because I read the whole Bible. I said, oh, okay, when did you no longer become a Christian? Oh, when I was 10, 12, okay? I said, huh, wow. You're a Bible scholar at 10 or 12. I doubt most 10 and 12-year-old at our church have finished the whole Bible, okay? But at the same time, when I read this, I actually think the Bible is so interesting. In fact, it is co- like coffee. I could read till 5. I was like, oh, no, I'm in trouble because I start seeing the sun coming up, okay? And I'm in trouble the next day. But at the same time, wow, this is so interesting, and I could keep going, okay? The Word of God and the Lord Himself is strength, okay? Even as application, even as you wait for marriage, make sure you wait upon the Lord. Trust in God and His timing, just like the story with Boaz, there are human responsibility during courtship. But also there's things that's in God's hand. And with the things that's in God's hand, you need to trust in God and wait upon Him. You need to trust in God, knowing that He is good. Let's go to the final point. This is not so much uh, from this passage, but it's more from the story, that the possibility of the story, that it might, humanly speaking, from Ruth and Boaz's eyes, while they're going linear in the story, we had the privilege of looking back and seeing things happening. One of the things I love about reading history is sometimes we read, oh, we know this guy will win this battle. But if you ever read from the perspective that the guy's going through their what? They don't know for sure, okay? One of the things, like even just like Gettysburg, right? You think, oh, you know, we know the union will be victory, blah, blah, blah. But man, that's not known at that time. In fact, the situation on the ground for most of the time seems like who's going to win? The Confederate side, right? So living through that, sometimes we have the luxury of looking at that, but then you see the smells of everything else. Same thing, roof and Boaz. But what if things don't go well? And reality is, what if people don't end up in courtship in getting towards marriage? Here I want to talk about the third point. How the pain of breaking up and or rejection. As we began this series of chapter 3, earlier a few weeks ago, courtship involves risk. But what if it turns out that you will not end up marrying the person you're courting. Or you, they don't even want to court you uh, at all. How do you handle the pain? I think the first thing is application. Pray to the Lord about your pain. Pray to the Lord about your pain. Philippians 4.6. Let's turn to Philippians 4.6. So for this third part, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages uh, in the other parts of the Bible. Okay? Philippians 4.6. This is what God's Word says. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your pain be known. You can pray. I love this verse. You can pray for all what? Things, okay? You can pray for all things. This include the good times of life, but also the tough times. 
including breakup and also what? Rejection. And yet this verse says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious, but what? What should we do? We should pray. We should cast our cares upon God. Your fears, your worries, your concern for the future, and yes, my brothers and sisters, even your pain. You pray to the Lord in your pain. Secondly, as application, related to this, almost synonymous, is you want to draw close to the Lord. You want to draw close to the Lord. What's the best way to draw close to the Lord? I think is to pray, but also to be in His Word. Meditate upon His Word. That is, you're not just reading academically, but reading it slowly, prayerfully. God has given us the book of Psalms, did He not? How many Psalms, which are actually songs of worship, how many songs are there in the book of Psalms? Talk to me. 150, okay. You guys realize most of the Psalms in the Bible are actually songs of lament. That is, trials and difficulty and you're crying out to God. Okay? Don't quote me on this. I believe like 63% or something like that um, of the Psalms, depending on how you break it up, is lament. Okay? We often think of songs of worship as what? Happy, happy, happy. Right? Also, by the way, I appreciate uh, Victor leading us in songs where it's deep theology. Right? It's not just repeating the phrase five times. Right? Just brainwashing or whatever. But just like biblical truth driving us, okay? Resurrection and all of that, okay? But here we see one of the best ways to deal with the pain, whether you're single, whether you've been rejected, whether it's broken up, is you go through the Psalms. Read through that slowly, okay? Read through that slowly. Read through that for your soul, okay? Read for your soul. By the way, we're also going for Tuesday Lighthouse Bible study at our house. We've been going over uh, through selected psalms. And some of those psalms are psalms of lament. So listen to good sermons also as well. Okay? Read good commentaries. Okay? Read co- good commentaries. Okay? One that you could always read for free if you Google it or use uh, the site Mr. Bernard's recommends, studylight.org. Um, one of the things you can look for is the Treasury of David. Okay? David is a good, uh, uh, by Charles Spurgeon. Okay? Charles Spurgeon should be for free also as well. Okay? So meditate on the Psalms to draw closer to the Lord. Thirdly, find your contentment in Christ when you feel lonely. Find your contentment in Christ when you feel lonely. Let me review all these three points again. You pray to the Lord in your pain. You draw closer to the Lord by reading the Psalms. And thirdly, you find your contentment in Christ when you feel lonely. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 6 to 8. This is what God's word says. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take it out either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Contentment in Christ is important, okay? Contentment in Christ is important. By the way, even if you are married, even if you do have kids, uh, sometimes when, even when I go on my walks, I think of the fact that, wow, I don't know if tomorrow I might lose my wife to illness. I don't know if, what's the possibility if there might be an accident with my kid and somehow things, bad things might happen. That should make us what? Appreciate our time that we have. Not take things for granted. That should change the way we relate to others. But that also should mean that knowing that everything's temporarily, you find your ultimate contentment in Christ. 
And in that final contentment in Christ, then you love them. By the way, let me say this real quick. The worst way to love somebody, uh, I actually, some people might think, oh, what, what do you mean? You love that person, but then you might find your ultimate love in God and contentment. I actually think that's the best way to love somebody. Because what if you find your ultimate hope, your dreams, your aspiration, and your contentment in that person? Could that be a possible that it could hurt the, rela- the relationship? Yes. When you set up someone as an idol, what happens? Will they truly satisfy? Will they disappoint? Yeah, they're not perfect. Then you want them to live up to uh, what? A two-dimensional picture that you have of them instead of who they are. Then it ends up what? You go from loving to being what? Annoyed or hating them also as well. So the best way to love somebody is ultimately to be secure first in the love of God. You don't want to be an insecure lover. So in going back to handling pain and breakup, go again, revisit the contentment of Christ and your identity in Christ. Okay? And ultimately, even in all the pain, you should also think about the pain of who? Christ. Has He known what it's like to be rejected? Yes. He's known what it is like to be rejected by those He loved the most. Did He not? He loved the world. He created the world. He made individuals. And yet His own rejected Him. Not just rejected Him and say, I don't want you. But He even rejected Him by putting Him on the cross. Dying for our sins. And He died still loving sinners who have vowed to be His enemies. So let this move you to love Christ even more. And therefore from there, your identity in Christ allows you to go through the day and living moment by minute. Handle the pain of breaking up and rejecting biblically by going to the cross, by reminded of how much Christ has loved you and died for you. Let's close in a word of prayer.